The Blue Castle by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read by Amy Zook from Grandma's Bookshelf. Chapter 14 Life cannot stop because tragedy enters it. Meals must be made ready, though a son dies. And porches must be repaired, even if your only daughter is going out of her mind. Mrs. Frederick, in her systematic way, had long ago appointed the second week in June for the repairing of the front porch, the roof of which was sagging dangerously. Roaring Abel had been engaged to do it many moons before, and Roaring Abel promptly appeared on the morning of the first day of the second week and fell to work. Of course, he was drunk. Roaring Abel was never anything but drunk. But he was only in the first stage, which made him talkative and genial. The odor of whiskey on his breath nearly drove Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles wild at dinner. Even Valancey, with all her emancipation, did not like it. But she liked Abel, and she liked his vivid, eloquent talk. And after she had washed the dinner dishes, she went out and sat on the steps and talked to him. Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles thought it was a terrible proceeding. But what could they do? Valancey only smiled mockingly at them when they called her in, and did not go. It was so easy to defy once you got started. The first step was the only one that really counted. They were both afraid to say anything more to her lest she might make a scene before Roaring Abel, who had spread it all over the country with his own characteristic comments and exaggerations. It was too cold a day, in spite of the June sunshine, for Mrs. Frederick to sit at the dining room window and listen to what was said. She had to shut the window, and Valancey and Roaring Abel had their talk to themselves. But if Mrs. Frederick had known what the outcome of that talk was going to be, she would have prevented it, if the porch was never repaired. Valancey sat on the steps, defiant of the chill breeze of this cold June, which had made Aunt Isabel avert that the seasons were changing. She did not care whether she caught a cold or not. It was delightful to sit there in that cold, beautiful, fragrant world to feel free. She filled her lungs with the clean, lovely wind and held out her arms to it and let it tear her hair to pieces while she listened to Roaring Abel, who told her his troubles between intervals of hammering gaily in time to his Scottish songs. Valancey liked to hear him. Every stroke of his hammer fell true to the note. Old Abel Gay, in spite of his seventy years, was handsome still, in a stately, patriarchal manner. His tremendous beard, falling down over his blue flannel shirt, was still a flaming, untouched red, though his shock of hair was white as snow, and his eyes were a fiery blue youth. His enormous reddish-white eyebrows were more like mustaches than eyebrows. Perhaps this was why he always kept his upper lip scrupulously shaved. His cheeks were red, and his nose ought to have been, but wasn't. It was a fine, upstanding, aquiline nose, such as the noblest Roman of them all might have rejoiced in. Abel was six feet two in his stockings, broad-shouldered, lean-hipped. In his youth, he had been a famous lover, finding all women too charming to bind himself to one. His years had been wild, colorful panorama of follies and adventures, gallantries, misfortunes, and misfortunes. He had been forty-five before he married, a pretty slip of a girl, whom's his going-on killed in a few years. Abel was piously drunk at her funeral and insisted on repeating the 55th chapter of Isaiah. Abel knew most of the Bible and all of the Psalms by heart. While the minister, whom he disliked, prayed, or tried to pray. Thereafter, his house was run by an untidy old cousin who cooked his meals and kept things going after a fashion. In this unpromising environment, little Cecilia Gray had grown up. Valancey had known Sissy Gray fairly well in public school, though Sissy had been three years younger than she. 
After they left school, their paths diverged, and she had seen nothing of her. Old Abel was Presbyterian. That is, he got a Presbyterian preacher to marry him, baptize his child, and bury his wife, and he knew more about the Presbyterian theology than most ministers, which made him a terror to them in arguments. But Roaring Abel never went to church. Every Presbyterian minister who had been in Deerwood had tried his hand once at reforming Roaring Abel, but he had not pestered of late. Reverend Mr. Bentley had been in Deerwood for eight years, but he had not sought out Roaring Abel since the first three months of his pastorate. He had called on Roaring Abel then, and found him in the theological state of drunkenness, which always followed the sentimental one, and preceding the roaring blasphemous one, the eloquently prayerful one in which he realized himself temporarily and intensely as a sinner in the hands of an angry God, was the final one. Abel never went beyond it. He generally fell asleep on his knees and awakened sober, but he had never been dead drunk in his life. He told Mr. Bentley that he was a sound Presbyterian and sure of his election. He had no sins that he knew of to repent of. Have you never done anything in your life that you are sorry for? asked Mr. Bentley. Roaring Abel scratched his bushy white head and pretended to reflect. Well, yes, he said finally. There were some women I might have kissed and didn't. I've always been sorry for that. Mr. Bentley went out and went home. Abel had seen that Sissy was properly baptized, jovially drunk at the same time himself. He made her go to church and Sunday school regularly. The church people took her up, and she was in return a member of the mission band, the girl's guide, and the young woman's missionary society. She was a faithful, unobtrusive, sincere little worker. Everyone liked Sissy Gray and was sorry for her. She was so modest and sensitive and pretty in that delicate, effusive fashion of beauty which fades so quickly, if life is not kept in it by love and tenderness. But then, liking and pity did not prevent them from tearing her in pieces like hungry cats when the catastrophe came. Four years previously, Sissy Gray had gone to a Muskoka hotel as a summer waitress, and when she came back in the fall, she was a changed creature. She hid herself away, and she went nowhere. The reason soon leaked out, and scandal raged. That winter, Sissy's baby was born. Nobody ever knew who the father was. Cicely kept her poor, pale lips tightly locked on her sorry secret. No one dared ask Roaring Abel any questions about it. Rumor and surmise laid the guilt at Barney Snythe's store because diligent inquiry among the other maids at the hotel revealed the fact that nobody there had ever seen Sissy Gray with a fellow. She had kept herself to herself, they said, rather resentfully. Too good for our dances. And now look. The baby had lived for a year. After its death, Sissy faded away. Two years ago, Dr. Marsh had given her only six months to live. Her lungs were hopelessly diseased. But she was still alive, Nobody went to see her. Women would not go to Roaring Abel's house. Mr. Bentley had gone once when he knew Abel was away, but the dreadful old creature who was scrubbing the kitchen floor told them Sissy wouldn't see anyone. The old cousin had died, and Roaring Abel had had two or three disreputable housekeepers, the only kind who could be prevailed upon to go to a house where a girl was dying of consumption. 
but the last one had left, and Roaring Abel would had no one now to wait on Sissy and do for him. This was the burden of his plaint to Valancy, and he condemned the hypocrites of Deerwood and its surrounding communities with some rich, meaty oaths that happened to reach Cousin Stickle's ears as she passed through the hall and nearly finished the poor lady. Was Valancy listening to that? Valancy hardly noticed the profanity. Her attention was focused on the horrible thought of poor, unhappy, disgraceful little Sissy Gray, ill and hopeless in that forlorn old house, out on the Mastaswis Road, without a soul to help or to comfort her. And this in a Christian community in the year of grace, nineteen and something odd. Do you mean to say that Sissy is all alone there now? With nobody to do anything for her? Nobody? Oh, she can move about a bit and get a bite and sup when she wants it. But she can't work. It's it's hard for a man to work all day and go home at night tired and hungry and cook his own meals. Sometimes I'm sorry I kicked old Rachel Edwards out. Abel talked and described Rachel rather picturesquely. Her face looked as if it had worn out a hundred bodies, and she moped. Talk about temper. Temper's nothing to moping. She was too slow to catch worms and dirty, dirty. I ain't unreasonable. I know a man has to eat his peck before he dies, but she went over the limit. What'd you suppose I saw that lady do? She'd made some pumpkin jam. Had it on the table in glass jars with the tops off. And the dog got up on the table and stuck his paw into one of them. What'd she do? She just took hold of the dog and wrung the syrup off his paw back into the jar. Then screwed the top on and set it in the pantry. I sets open the door and says to her, go. And the dame went and I fired the jars of pumpkin after her two at a time. Thought I'd die laughing to see old Rachel run with them pumpkin jars raining after her. She's told everywhere I'm crazy, so nobody'll come for love or money. But Sissy must have someone to look after her, insisted Valancy, whose mind was centered on this aspect of the case. She did not care whether Roaring Abel had anyone to cook for him or not, but her heart was wrung for Cecilia Gray. Oh, she gets on. Barney Snythe always drops in when he's passing and does anything she wants. Brings her oranges and flowers and things. There's a Christian for you. Yet that sanctimonious, shriveled parcel of St. Andrew's people wouldn't be seen on the same side of the road with him. Their dogs will go to heaven before they do. And their minister? Slick as the cat if licked him. There's plenty of good people, both in St. Andrews and St. George's, who'd be kind to help Sissy if you would behave yourself, said Valancy sincerely. They're afraid to go near your place. Because I'm such a sad old dog, I don't bite. Never bit anyone in my life. A few loose words spill around, don't hurt anybody. And I'm not asking people to come. Don't want them poking and prying about. What I want is a housekeeper. If I shaved every Saturday and went to church... I'd get all the housekeepers I want. I'd be respectable then. What's the use of going to church when it's all settled by predestination? Tell me that, miss. Is it? said Valancy. Yep. Can't get round it no how. Wish I could. I don't want either heaven or hell for steady. Wish a man could have them mixed in equal proportions. 
Isn't that the way it is on this earth? said Valancey thoughtfully, but rather as if her thought was concerned with something else than theology. Nope, nope, boomed Abel, striking a tremendous blow on a stubborn nail. There's too much hell here, entirely too much hell. That's why I get drunk so often. It sets you free a little while, free from yourself. Yes, by God, free from predestination. Ever try it? <laughs> no, I've found another way of getting free, said Valancey absently. But about Sissy now, she must have someone to look after her. What are you harping on Sis for? Seems to me you ain't bothered much about her up till now. You never even come to see her, and she used to like you so well. I should have, said Valancey. But never mind. You couldn't understand. The point is, you must have a housekeeper. Where am I to get one? I could pay decent wages if I could get a decent woman. Do you think I like old hags? Will I do, said Valancey.